hello, this is The Schwepp. I'm Earl Fontanelle, and I'm here today with Peter Gray, a man who knows a thing or two about many things magical. Um, Peter, thanks very much for doing an interview. No, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be on The Schwepp. So, you have just come out with a book with your press, Scarlet Imprint, called The Two Antichrists, and it's a lovely read. It's particularly interesting to us as historians of modern occultism because it's a new take on the famous Crowley Parsons with Hubbard in parentheses after it exchange that went on in the 1940s, which is one of these sort of legends, historical events that's become legend. Before we get into your sort of findings and your, your take on the, the stuff, can you introduce what went on? Jack Parsons is a, uh, a student of Alistair Crowley who was living in California um, and is the most, perhaps the most famous of the modern occultists in that he produced a, a slim but important body of work and he engaged in a series of recorded magical workings to bring through the goddess Babylon and transform the world. Um, Jack's particularly famous because he was a, a, a success in the world as a rocket scientist who uh, was responsible for putting man in the moon um, by developing a solid rocket fuel. So Jack's another example, one, a rare example of a, a magician who, who also also was a, a person in the world and a person within history to the extent that he has a crater on the dark side of the moon named after him. Jack was a trust fund kid and he owned a large sprawling mansion in Pasadena which he filled with artists, bohemians, um, sexual deviants um, and freaks, one of whom was um, Lafayette Ron Hubbard, the famous founder of Scientology. Um, at this stage, Hubbard was a science fiction writer. He'd recently uh, left the Navy after a less than illustrious war career, where he bombed some imaginary submarines, um, fired on um, an island off the coast of Mexico, um, and, and was finally relieved of his command, um, suffering from a variety of, of health conditions. Um, so he didn't exactly get kicked out of the Navy, but they sort of said, you know what, Maybe it's time for you to move on. He was relieved of command of the, the vessel that he was in command of. Um, but none of, this, none of this really filtered through to anyone else because Hubbard, Hubbard was a, um, a grand teller of tall tales, which some people loved and embraced and others found, found, him, found him to be a, a, a pretty shitty individual. So, so it depends whether he got caught up in the excitement of his life or not. But, but Hubbard turned up and moved into the parsonage um, in full, full naval uniform and proceeded to present himself as an Errol Flynn-type character. So he and Jack would, um, would, uh, would, would fight with rapiers in the back garden and uh, stay up late into the night talking about, uh, talking about spirits and magic. And, uh, and this is, where, this is where, where Hubbard became introduced to, to the ideas of Alistair Crowley. Right, so... To back up a little bit and fill in what might be a few gaps. The, first of all, there's no Scientology yet. There's no. not even Dianetics no. yet. So this Nothing. is the young Hubbard before he's reinvented himself as a spiritual entrepreneur. Jack is part of an OTO lodge, 
Ordo Templi Orientis in California of all places. And we're talking about sort of 1945 here, I guess, yeah. when Hubbard shows up? Yeah, Hubbard shows up. So can you just give us a, a, a little glimpse on the state of the OTO, what's Crowley doing in this period, like what, what's happening? Okay, we're, we're at a period of an aging and pretty much dying Crowley. So, so Crowley's had his big adventures. He's now back in, back in England um, and is trying to, trying to pursue his last chance of making, making a world religion out of Thelema. So Agape Lodge is the only functioning OTO lodge in the world at this period. So there, there isn't really an OTO. There's a large house owned by Jack Parsons um, with a variety of, um, a variety of freaks and, and adepts who have a library of Crowley's material and who are sending money back to Crowley in England in order to keep him in cigars and brandy and, uh, and, and, and generally as much good living as he could possibly get. So we're... We, we're at a kind of we're at a critical kind of hinge state where 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 Crowley's grand dreams are kind of like sinking into the mist, but he's still trying to control by letter um, a fairly fractious group of people who are who are excited modern both Americans and English people. The the head of the lodge initially is uh, an Englishman called uh, Wilfred Smith, who Crowley eventually deposes in favour of Jack. Um, but it's, it's an enthusiastic Los Angeles-adjacent crowd of people who are spiritual seekers. And, and although you said that Hubbard wasn't engaging in his career at this stage, he'd actually been practicing and describing himself as a swami in Los Angeles, even, even before he arrived at Agape Lodge. So, so Hubbard, was, Hubbard was already in the spiritual game. Yeah, got it. And... When was the Agape Lodge founded? What's the sort of backstory to it before we get? Because no, no, it's not really on anyone's radar until Jack Parsons comes along. The foundation date of it would have been, it would have been early 1940s. Okay, so it's relatively young. But it's still relatively young. Mm. Yeah, it's relatively young. They've been holding, they've been holding Gnostic masses in a couple of different locations and trying to drum up, drum up support. Um, but it's. It's only when Jack comes and uh, provides the money and the, and the location that things really take off for them. Mm. Now, let's talk a little bit about the science fiction video, because this is really interesting um, and becomes relevant, mm. right? Um, you've got people like Robert Heinlein and I think Isaac Asimov and just a bunch of West Coast early... I mean, some people call this the golden age of science fiction, I think, actually, mm. 1940s. So speculative fiction, and they, they kind of gather in, in these informal groups and have clubs and stuff and get together and talk about science fiction. And, and Jack is an avid member of this sort of social scene. Yeah, right? Jack, Jack's, a, Jack's an absolute science fiction nerd. Um, so and he, he's, he's responding to it in the same way that he responds to Crowley. He responded to Crowley initially because he saw that Crowley was talking about modern science and the way that he talked about magic was backed by the way that science was emerging. In the same way, he reads science fiction as, as a genre which is describing the future as it happens. So um, a, a good example um, is... He reached Jack Williamson um, in 1939 um, with a story called The Crucible of Power. And it's 
this story which suggests to Jack the idea of making solid rocket fuel. So it's, it's, it's feeding into both his magical and his scientific world at the same time. Um, so Jack's, Jack's very much part of this. He's reading the pulp magazines. He's always been excited by science fiction. He's dyslexic, so his reading comprehension isn't great. So the pulps were a, a great a great field for him to like feel more confident about reading literature and, and, and engaging with the world. And he's read old Ron Hubbard. And now old Ron Hubbard's living in his house. He has one of the great men of science fiction. So it's, a, it's an exciting time. Mm. So what happens next? Well, Jack explains to, to Hubbard um, his own history back at him. So... Hubbard, Hubbard has a critical childhood experience where he encounters uh, a figure he calls the Empress who appears to him on the wing of his glider when he's in positions of, of, of danger and trouble um, and rescues him um, from, from, from destruction. And this figure, Jack sees and goes, well, this, this is your holy guardian angel. And, and here's Crowley and here's... Here are the critical aspects of Philema, and one of the critical aspects is knowledge and conversation of one's holy guardian angel. And Hubbard, this is you. And so he massively enthused, he writes to Crowley and he says, he says, you know, Hubbard is the most Philemic man I've ever met. So there's a real exciting meeting of mind. So so obviously the two are gonna end up doing magic together because that's that's Jack's thing, that's the house. Um, that's what's happening. Hubbard's, Hubbard's obviously got some ability in this field um, and, and he talks a damn good game. And so, um, so Hubbard has at this period run off with Jack's girlfriend. Mm. So Jack is um, pretty bereft because Hubbard, Hubbard is like making out with her in front of him and like he's... He's, he's trying to be cool about it because they're, they're living in this new polyamorous, like, super West Coast thalemic future where, where, where everyone's partner swapping and no one, no one owns anyone or anything. So Jack, like all classical magicians, is going, I need a girlfriend. And in order to get a girlfriend, he resorts to magic. And the... The Babylon working, the, the, the fame, one of the most famous um, magical works in modern history, begins with Jack doing a piece of Enochian magic with, with L. Ron Hubbard in order to summon an elemental. This is something that Crowley talks about um, in detail in the higher grade materials. But Jack had access to all of these materials because the Agape library was essentially open. So Jack was able to look at... Um, look at the eighth degree material without, without having to have gone through any of the grades. So he decides that the thing to do is to call up an elemental. So he and, um, he and L1 Hubbard set to a piece of Enochian magic to summon um, an angel of um, sub-angle. It's the sub-angle of the element of fire. Um, so they, they go through a series of workings and then they have out of the desert, right? Both initially within initially within within the lodge itself. So we're, we're within Jack's temple setup. So Jack's Jack's room had a magic circle on the ground, and they they had a, all of the paraphernalia. So the the first stage would have been done 
um, in the house and there are various magical events happen. There's a, a windstorm, there's um, some lamps get blown over and smashed. There's like general psychic activity. So we've got like a, a heightened kind of like PK environment going on around the two of them. And things get, things get, things start crackling. And then he and Hubbard go out into the desert for, um, for reasons unknown because we don't have a full record of what happened. And Jack has the intuition that it is done, that the, the ritual has been a success. And they return to, um, they return to the parsonage, and there on the doorstep is Marjorie Cameron. Dun and, dun dun. And of course, Marjorie Cameron is um, is the spitting image of the elemental they're looking for. She's a she's a red-haired, green-eyed, um, you know, striking and remarkable-looking woman um, who fits exactly the the. The, the shape of the spirit they've been calling, um, which is amazing. So, so Jack's excited, and he and Marjorie um, embark on a on a passionate affair at this point. Um, she had previously visited the parsonage, so this wasn't like the first time she'd been there. So it's not a it's not a complete out of the blue moment, but but it was magically highly highly significant for him. Um, so. The critical thing is that in this first part of the working, Jack Jack was doing solo sex magic, but he wasn't having sex with Hubbard, and we don't have a record as to whether Hubbard was present while Jack was engaged in autoerotic practice, but it's possible, it's possible that they were, were together during that point. Um, and then and then Jack's Jack's head over heels and, and he and Cameron spend the next two weeks not doing formal magic, but 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 just having sex. Right. Although, isn't isn't that sort of framed in his writings, maybe after the fact, as like basically every every time we were having sex, it was it was really invoking Babylon the whole time. That's that's kind of that that's complicated. Um, okay. The, the, the reason it's complicated, you can tell you can tell a top level story where 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 that's what's happening. But the problem is when you look at the testimony, um, it isn't borne out. So Marjorie is highly, highly sceptical about magic. Okay. Um, she rejects the entire idea of magic. She rejects the idea that she is anything to do with this. So, so, so Jack's off in his own head in a honeymoon period of the relationship going, this is great, this is magic, this is my, you know, this is my elemental. But Marjorie doesn't know any of this. Right. None of it. And the other, the other thing which, which, which confuses this is that at the same time um, Jack was writing to Crowley about sex magic, and we don't have Jack's letter, but we have Crowley's reply. And Crowley writes back and goes, I don't know why you're talking about ceremonial magic all the time. Why, why are you talking about this? Because it's just, just, I found a shortcut. And Crowley's shortcut is sex and visualisation. And so... At the period where Jack is making love to Cameron, he's writing to Crowley going, it's all about ritual magic. And Crowley's writing back and going, no, it's, it's, it's about sexual visualisation. So that, that argues against Jack and Cameron actually having any form of magical sexual intercourse during this period. Um, though retrospectively, I mean, Jack certainly saw it as magical, but, but Marjorie... 
Marjorie is um, skeptical about magic pretty much until um, after Jack dies. But then she comes on board. Then she comes on board, yeah. Then mm. she comes on board. Um, and she comes on board in a fairly messy way because she, she's, um, she's clearly a woman who's had some major mental health issues. She's been institutionalised several times. Um, she's, she's taking a lot of psychoactive drugs. She's um, smoking a lot of weed. She's living a very, um, a very fractured life. So, so when Marjorie does get to magic... Um, she's doing so because she's in a quite quite a difficult mental place that I, I don't think we should necessarily valorise. Okay, yeah. So they do this working. Marjorie Cameron shows up, or Cameron, as she later came yeah. to be known, and they fall in love and have a... Weirdly mirroring, in some way, um, Crowley and and Edith Rose Kelly, it seems to me. This yep. sort of unexpected, but total head-over-heels encounter with leading to, like, this crazy new commitment and we're off and we're not looking back sort of thing. Yeah. And then what happens? So, that lasts for two weeks and then, um, then Cameron leaves for New York. Okay, what's she doing in New York? Um, it's unknown. Right. It's okay. unclear. Um, it's possible that there's some suggestions she might have been to New York to have an abortion. Mm. Um, but you know it's it's difficult to tell what's happening we don't have a good record of that but while she's away um, while she's away things in the Babylon working um, things in the Babylon working start to start to progress so we started with a a fairly small working um, to gain control of an elemental spirit but Jack then goes out into the desert and performs a variant of a Crowley ritual called Liber Nu, um, which is um, an identification and an encounter with the star goddess. So it's a it's a night under it's a night under the under the stars. Um, and Jack goes into the desert and he he gets something quite strange. He hadn't gone out to do this, but he receives a channeled text from the goddess Babylon. Um, now that wasn't. That, that wasn't the deal when him and Ron started working. I mean, it, it, it absolutely wasn't what was, what was expected. But when he goes into the desert, um, he receives a, a channeled text where the goddess gives him uh, a series of, 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 of tasks, gives him like a prophetic vision of the future. And... And both repeats many of the elements within the Book of the Law, but also, also gives Jack something which completes the Crowley cycle. So Crowley's Libra Valegis is a, is a, is a three-chapter work, and Jack believed that the text that he now received was the fourth chapter of the Book of the Law, which completes Crowley's Yot-Hei-Vau-Hei formula. So he's done something remarkable within, within the within the history of Thelema. He's, he's brought through a new scripture which completes something which Crowley thought was already completed. So it's a heresy. I mean, it's, a, it's a major heresy. And it's one which creates quite a problem for, for OTO and for Thelema because they have to either accept that this is the fourth book of the law 
or they have to throw Jack out entirely. And that's a, that, that, that's a theological problem that, that, that causes a lot of difficulties. So he comes back from the desert kind of all wild-eyed and with some, some scribbled yep. bits of paper. Does he then just kind of... I know, I know he, we have a letter from him to Crowley where he says something along the lines of, I've received some really, really exciting stuff. It's fantastic. But he doesn't tell him what it is. He doesn't no. say, this is the fourth chapter of the book of the law, buddy, so get ready. He just says, it's really cool. Um, and Crowley says, okay, yeah, tell me more. I have no idea what you're on about. But is he showing up at the Agape Lodge with papers in hand going, I have it, the new book of the law. Everyone come, come around. Is he like openly saying this or is he being circumspect about it? Do we know the exact... He's being circumspect. Right. Um, one, one of the reasons he's being circumspect is he's still looking for like magical confirmation. Right. Okay. So he's not, he, he, he wants to make sure it's the, what it says it is. He wants to make sure it's what he, say, he says it is by also receiving proofs from, from, from the spirits and from other people. So, um, so Hubbard turns up again. Hubbard's, Hubbard's been absent during this period. Hubbard doesn't know what Jack's done in the desert. But Hubbard, Hubbard has a vision of a woman um, riding a giant cat-like beast. And so that, that for Jack is immediately like, you know... That's the confirmation. Here's the confirmation. Okay. So they immediately get back to, to magic. So they, they return to the Enochian and they do another Enochian work. And this time they go, they go deliberately after Babylon. So they, 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 they follow the... Um, the exhortation to seek, seek me in the seventh air. So they return to the Enochian work and they, they, perform, um, they perform an Enochian ritual um, and they do a, a three-day Enochian working. Um, and that results in, that results in a, a poem called The Birth of Babylon, which is kind of Jack drawing a line under that and saying, yes, this, this, is, this has happened. Like, you know, Babylon, Babylon is here. Um, and and things will will never be the same again. Hmm. So but, it's messianic in some way. Yeah, it's, he's I guess in having been trained to think in terms of new eons and people who embody the word of a new eon and all this st- stuff by Crowley himself. He's now slotted into that role. Yeah, saying, yeah. I'm I'm the next new word of the eon, and and Babylon is here. And she's going to sort of balance out what's been going on with the Eon of Horus to make it yeah, the, work. Yeah, this is the problem. The, pro- the problem is that, that Crowley, Crowley projects the Eon of Horus and Force and Fire. And, and when you read, the, when you read the, the second two books in the Book of the Law, it's, it's pretty unpleasant martial stuff. Um, I, I actually have a feeling that if Crowley had opened the Book of the Law with book two and three and finished with... with um, with Nuit, then 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 no one would have actually signed up for Kalima ever. I think I think people read read the first book and then make excuses for the second too. But this this Horus force, this violent force that's unleashed in the world with the world wars, with like complete destruction. Jack is trying to balance out with Babylon. He sees Babylon as a as a a way of ameliorating some of these worse aspects that have, that have that have been birthed by by Crowley. Which is really interesting from the perspective of someone who's in the United States working on rocketry at precisely the time when German rockets are falling on London yeah. all day long. So the, so the real first push toward rocketry was from the German industrial side. 
to make a super weapon for Hitler. He's work, he works for his own company, but it's somehow connected with the U.S. military. They're, they're sort of one of these public-private partnerships. And I don't know the details, but I believe it eventually evolves. Part of it, at least, gets uh, sort of folded into the new thing called NASA, which comes after the, yeah. the war, after Jack is sadly long gone. So he's in that military-industrial complex. And in the Second World War, you can see why... If you look back from that vantage point on the Book of the Law revealed before the First World War, then the First World War happens, Crowley and a bunch of other people say, well, this is exactly what the Book of the Law was talking about. Yeah. And now the Second World War has happened. It's in some ways even worse than the first. You can see why, if you, if you take this sort of magical messianic view of history, it's like, okay, Crowley set something in play or, or something was set in play using him as the vessel for it or whatever. Uh, but it's it's terrifying and, and awful. Mm. And now we need some... The next thing to come into play to sort of make it survivable. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, one, of, one of the things that, that critically happens here is around the bomb. So we should, we should really probably talk about the bomb. So when we look at where the Babylon working is, I, I, I frame it in the book as being, being between the... The Trinity test and the Roswell incident, and that kind of gives you a, a, a cultural sense of the, the world that, that, that Jack was within. But we've we've forgotten um, we've forgotten what the feeling was around the nuclear bomb in that period, and the feeling that was around the, the science fiction community in the response to the bomb, um, which was absolutely critical. The the editor of the one of Jack's favourite science fiction magazines um, was actually invited to write a, a leader piece for the New Yorker about the nuclear bomb and uh, the, he says in the piece that the bomb will create a new race of humans it will create telepaths and freaks and uh, the new man and uh, so there's a sense that, that the age that they've opened into um, has unleashed something which will both transform humanity. So, so the, the effect of a nuclear bomb is people will be transformed and will develop psychic abilities and these crazy things will happen. And that's counterbalanced by another thing that, that the science fiction magazines are absolutely obsessed with, which is the force that's been unleashed by the nuclear bomb requires a complementary shift in human evolution in order that we are not destroyed by it, in order that we can control it. So Crowley's talk about the new man and the coming, you know, the coming world of Thelema and, and doing one's will and self-mastery, these all become transposed into, in, in the nuclear age into a, we have to become the new man, we have to become, we have to become the children of Thelema because otherwise we're going to destroy the world. So the, there's a there's a, a mix up of these 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 fields. There's a mix of the the science fiction field with the magical field with like the the, the new thought field, and they're they're all they're all coming together. And, and and Jack is Jack is you know this this perfect crucible for these things to occur in. Now in this period, um, he's a busy man. Obviously, is mm. he also out? testing rockets all day long and stuff like this yeah he's, he's out in the field blowing things up I mean Jack, Jack's Jack is launching rockets and reciting 
for him to pan with every launch, much to the chagrin of like the the people around uh, at the time. But it's it's all linked. There is, there is no separation between Jack as a scientist and Jack as a magician. The two are the two are inseparable. Right. Um, it's it's great that you say that because it brings us back to all those debates about magic and especially magia naturalis in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, mm. the, the so-called scientific revolution, which, of course, you know, the, the sort of dirty secret of all of that narrative is that there was so much magic and alchemy and Kabbalah and so on around and indeed seamlessly integrated in the practice of the Newtons and Boyles and so on of the world that you can't just say, well, he's a scientist here, but over here we sweep away all the magic stuff. It's like, no, the same practice. It's all one thing. And it's interesting that that survives in such a, in such a dramatic way into the era of the true white lab coat mm. scientist of the future, the 1940s America, optimism, progress, better living through chemistry. Oh, and let's do an invocation of Pan before we, before we press play on this rocket here. Yeah. Part of the thesis that I present in to Antichrist is that, that there's a fracturing that actually occurs at this point with Jack, with the ideas of science and magic, and that my feeling is that, that it's Alan Hubbard who continues to talk in this language. So, I mean, literally, Scientology, yeah. you know, this, this invented like term that he, he comes up with, takes the science and moves forward with that, and it leaves magic in quite a difficult place because magic... Magic is so um, repulsed by Hubbard and, and what Hubbard represents that it almost, it almost kind of falls back into itself and becomes, becomes medieval again and, and doesn't, doesn't want to look at the future and doesn't want to move into the future or use this language of science in a way that, that, that Crowley did, that, that Jack did and that, that magic always has and, and that there's, there's quite a rupture that occurs um, and my my suggestion is that we we look at this period and we we say, well, why why do we need to have this break? Why 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 can't we continue to have magic and science and to talk in both of these terms? I mean, I, I, I suppose you could you could say that some aspects of chaos magic did this. So so um, you know, Peter J. Carroll in particular. Um, ragingly scientific in its language, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But they the problem with the the problem with the, the chaos magicians is that they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So they they um they started to try they started to try and and, uh, and claw that back to move to to reintroduce the idea of spirits. But but the early writing of chaos magic is pretty clear that that it's it's all a bit of a psychological game that's being played by a variety of by a variety of mathematicians in in England, in in, in Leeds and and, uh, and London, in yeah, in the nineteen eighties, not not the modern American version of chaos magic, which is so popular on the internet. Right, um, that's a, a subject for another episode. It's a huge subject. Yeah. Um, when you talk about a split between magic and science mm. in in the culture, we're talking about a culture of people who do ritual magic. Is that basically what you mean? Because yeah, so yeah, I'm talking about practitioners. Practitioners. Yeah. So we're talking about mostly people who live in modern Europe or America, yep. United States, 
who go and practice ritual magic. So that's the kind of cultural group we're talking about. We're not talking about the bigger question of magic and science and all this sort of thing. So what happens next? Everything goes wrong, um, <laughs> which, which is often the result of doing magic. Um, so Hubbard has done this work with Jack. Everything seems to be great. He's been talking to Jack about uh, um, a business enterprise that they might want to work on together and has um, put together a company called Allied Enterprises. And he runs off with all of Jack's money in, um, in a kind of yacht scam. So, so Hubbard absconds with Jack's money, his ex-partner, um, and a yacht. And uh, Jack, Jack realises that, that something is wrong here. So, so Jack does an invocation of Bartzible and has the, the yacht that Hubbard is on um, driven back to shore in the, in the teeth of a storm, mm. um, which is, a, you know, again, there are, there are echoes of the John Dee story here as well with, with the work that Dee did to destroy the Armada with a, with a walnut shell spell. So... So there, there are there are a lot of kind of crazy parallels here, but but Hubbard then Hubbard then leaves the scene from Agape Lodge. I mean, uh, Hubbard Hubbard is gone. Jack's in pieces, and he spends. He's also broke, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's broke. Um, he's um, he's increasingly getting in trouble with his security clearance because um, you know he's he's a black magician and. Um, the military-industrial complex uh, are suspicious of uh, of people who are who are who are unorthodox, hmm. um, and Jack was certainly that. So, from 1946 to 1948, we have kind of a, kind of quite a big a big hole in Jack Jack's fortunes. I mean, he, his life falls apart. His relationship with Cameron is is a disaster. She keeps heading off to Mexico to um, San Miguel de Allende, um, the artist colony, um, where she has affairs with the town mayor and a bullfighter um, and generally lives a, a pretty um, dissolute, crazy artistic life where she drops in and out of Jack's life so that their, their relationship is a, is a mess um, and he, he, ends up, he ends up filing for divorce um, on the grounds of extreme cruelty. Wow. So it's, it's tempting to tell the Jack Cameron story as like this incredible like love story, but it's, it's more complicated than that. You can see the seeds for that surely are in what you said earlier. Like he, she's like, I'm a bohemian. This is a crazy house. I love it. Oh, and here's this like really handsome dude who just rocked up and he's like gazing at because he thinks she's the elemental, right? So he's looking at me with like eyes on fire and he throws me on the bed and we have an amazing time. Let's continue being bohemians and maybe we'll hook up again sometime. And he's like, no, but you are my elemental. Don't you understand? Yeah. You know, different expectations from the relationship. Yeah, and more than that, he, from having received the the Book of Babylon, having received Libra 49, he... He has an inkling that she is, in fact, the incarnation of Babylon on Earth. Mm. That she is the sotterer. That she is she is the she is the figure who has come to redeem mankind. Who will who will with him cause all the nations of Earth to to kneel at their feet and to to um, 
to convert to Thelema, to, to transform to transform civilizations, transform the, the destiny of all humans. But Jack is very careful to wait for her to, to display the signs, to, to, to come into this. Because, I mean, it's a ridiculously heavy burden. Yeah, no pressure or anything. Yeah, no pressure or anything. <laughs> I mean, this is one of the problems with the script that Crowley sets people up with. And, and I, think, I think this is one of Jack's problems, and it's one that the modern magicians have to be very careful to sidestep as well, is taking on these dangerous messianic roles and being destroyed by them. Mm. And Crowley himself, arguably, if, wasn't, if he wasn't destroyed by his messianic role, he certainly comes across as a failure in his messianic role, you know? Yeah, there's certainly a good argument if Crowley had not cleaved to the Book of the Law and had simply continued as a, as a magician, then, um, then he would have had a better outcome. Mm. Yeah, so Jack has two, two terrible years, losing security clearances, losing his big swanky house, um, having a variety of different partners other than Cameron, and it, it, it's all gone wrong. Um, but in 1948, he returns to the material, he returns to the Babylon material, and has a huge recapitulation He's living quite kind of like on the edge of his nerves and he, he has a dream contact from the goddess and he then engages in the Antichrist work and he engages in his, his next major magical escapade. And this is something that he, he doesn't do with Cameron. This is obviously Hubbard is long gone. This is, this is Jack trying to force a way through and the way he does that is to try to re-establish contact with the goddess and the way he does that is through sex magic. So he, he sets out and does something that he calls the star working, um, which is not talked about very, very often. Um, and this is a 17-day sex magical working. And given where Jack is in his record, he's having, he's having ritual sex, sex magic with different partners. So this is a mix of like randoms and, um, and, and professional prostitutes. And he... He forces his way through this until he has another revelation. And because he's following the script of Thelema, he's trying to, he's trying to undergo the ordeal of the abyss. He's trying to, he's trying to, to push through to his next level of magical attainment. Now, so Now this is, goes back to the Golden Dawn system, right? Mm. So Crowley sort of across the abyss with in the, out in the Algerian desert I think yep. went in with young Victor Neuberg was that before the whole OTO started I can't remember now I think I think that was pre-OTO I think that was pre-OTO but anyway this is this, Crowley seems you know there's a lot of this earlier Golden Dawn system stuff still going on anyway yeah so Jack Jack does this largely through um, through through dream and visionary work um, so he's dreaming and astrally projecting and he's doing what magicians typically do with this which is you set up a you set up a feedback loop so you gain information you feed it back in you perform more magic you perform more dream work and this this is all fed into by a variety of sources including literary sources so jack jack starts to cut in um cut in text that he's read to his um to his magical process and I, it's an early example of someone doing that that's taken to its kind of like 
is total madness by someone like Kenneth Grant. But but Jack is Jack finally has the vision that he's looking for, and he travels in the astral to the black basalt pillared towers of, of Corazine where the Antichrist is meant to be born. And there he encounters um, the the prince who is clearly the devil. So so Jack has an encounter with 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 the devil who bestows upon him the you know the grade of the grade and the curse of the Antichrist and, and Jack returns from this in a in a in another elated state. Um, he's pushed through, he produces a manifesto of the Antichrist and he believes himself to be a, mag- a master of the temple. He's crossed the abyss, he's now fully realised. So he goes back to Wilfred Smith, who was the previous head of Agape Lodge and is, is now deposed, and he kind of like presents this at, at, at Wilfred's feet to kind of say, say, say you know, you're, you're the only person in the world who will understand at this point what I've been through, and, and I am now this thing. Um, which is which is pretty remarkable. Um, well, one that he survived, and the, the, uh, and and two that he he starts to come out of this fairly psychotic period because magicians magicians during our work we push ourselves to some quite difficult positions and difficult mental positions and difficult mental states. I mean, you know, it has been described as you know kind of a radical form of. of of psychoanalytic process that we, we we're doing to ourselves, untrained professionals, without without external help, and it doesn't always go well. Yeah, no safety net. No safety net. Mm. No safety net. And Jack is Jack is off the reservation now. He's now saying, "I am self-realized, and now and now now I am the one person in the world who is here to take the lemur forwards," which is which is what he's proposing with with. The manifesto of the Antichrist. He's declaring war on Christianity, and he's saying, he's saying, this is it, this is it. I am here, and I am the Antichrist, and and Babylon is either either present or is about to reveal herself, or she's about to be born as the, as the magical child of potentially, you know, him and Cameron. So it's a it's a really it's a difficult place that he's in. But very often people look at this period of Jack's life and they go, well, Jack did some stuff with, with Aaron Harbour, then he had a book, then he went mental, then he blew himself up. But what actually happens is Jack did the work with Hubbard, Jack received a book, he stepped away from it for a while, he did another radical piece of work, and then he put his life back together. Then he spent two years on a fairly regular, on a fairly regular like set of work. He he organised his essays. He put together his structure for a new order, the witchcraft. He had job opportunities. He was looking at either moving to Mexico or moving to Israel. He was back with Cameron again, who reunited with him after the Antichrist working. It looked like everything was going to come up roses in Jack's life. So it's possible to take the, some of the fragments from Jack and think he's lost it. He's, he's mental, he's having a psychotic breakdown, but 
He's in fact had a psychotic break if you want to be uncharitable, but he's had a crisis and now he's through it. Now he's, now he's rational, now he's sane, now he's coming together. When you, when you read accounts of Cameron having friends come over to smoke weed with her, they'd look at Jack and go, who's the fucking square? Yeah. Because, because Jack, was, Jack wasn't like one of these wild bohemians. I mean, he picked up dope smoking from Cameron, but he, he looked like a square at this stage, you know. He, he put on weight, he was filling out, he was becoming mature, he was, he was entering the next phase of his life, but it was only then, with his messy lab work, that he mixed the fatal flask of fulminate of mercury and dropped it and destroyed, destroyed the laboratory and, and, and died, in, died in pretty severe agony. Stay esoteric. <laughs>